Hello, this is Steve here, just popping into this feed to say that my other podcast, my new podcast, Steve Pretty on the Origin of the Pieces, is out now. Um, this is episode four, which I thought I would include in this feed, just so if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, you can have a little listen to how we've progressed since episode one, which I put on this feed a few weeks back. So if you liked what you heard during the pandemic with house music, please do check out this new show. Pretty sure you're going to like this as well. It's got a lot of the same themes as house music, but uh, it's quite a lot more ambitious. I talk to multiple guests every episode. I make a specific track in different genre every episode. All sorts of stuff. So yeah, do tune in. It's in all the usual places. Spotify, podcasting apps, wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! Hello, my name is Steve Pretty. I am a musician and composer and performer from London. This is my show, Steve Pretty on the Origin of the Pieces. This is the show that tries to help you to hear and understand music in new ways. So welcome back to the podcast. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Um, thank you very much for all the lovely feedback uh, for the last show. We covered a lot of fascinating ground, I thought, last time. Uh, we looked at Mbanga, which I still can't pronounce after a lot of trying and a lot of help from my friend Claude Depper from South Africa, who gave us some fascinating insight into the world of Mbanga and township music in general. And also we had Tamar Osborne taking us through the saxophone, baritone saxophone, flute and tape delay, which is really nice squelchy tones that were happening there. A lot of people were enjoying that, so if you haven't checked that out, please do go back and have a listen. I think you'll get lots out of it. Coming up on today's show, we have got more guests, still more guests. Really lucky to have had some fantastic guests on this uh, show so far, and today is no exception. Um, at the end, we're going to be talking to uh, my friend, the comedian Andrew O'Neill, um, about that amazing genre that I've been learning so much about in the last couple of weeks, Death Grind. And also, I had a really interesting chat in my Entertaining Noises section with the brilliant Nicole Cassandra Smith, who is a wonderful vocalist who I've worked with quite a lot. And she was in the studio to talk about singing, talk about how singing works um, and demonstrate some techniques, some really interesting stuff with, through those binaural microphones so you can get inside the head of a singer in multiple ways. So stay tuned for that. First, I wanted to talk about something very dear to my heart, and that is Remembrance Sunday. Now, for those of you living in different parts of the world or who might not know about this, uh, in the UK, on the 11th of November, we commemorate people who have lost their lives in war. So on the 11th of November, Armistice Day in the uh, First World War, I believe. So people wear poppies as a symbol of remembrance. And there is a service of remembrance in most churches and war memorials around the UK. As a musician, especially doing the sort of music that I do, it's relatively rare that I get to participate in um, a kind of community event like this. I mean, sometimes I have played for funerals and things like that. That can be uh, very moving. Um, but this is a, a something bigger than that, if you like. This is a nationwide recognition of the people who have uh, lost their lives in wars. And particularly at the moment, of course, with so many dreadful wars going on around the world um, it feels very 
close to home. But as a trumpet player, I have the rare privilege to be able to participate in some of these ceremonies. And so for many years now, since I was a kid, really, learning the trumpet, I have been able to uh, play at services of remembrance in churches or in hospitals or for the British Legion or whoever it might be. And it's I always find it profoundly moving, um, a really, a really amazing thing to be able to do, to be able to be a small part of... Um, yeah, and it's something that I don't get to do very much in the rest of my career. And so for the last couple of years, I have been part of a really lovely service uh, in Stoke Newington in a place called Abney Park Cemetery in northeast London. Um, and this is a, an amazing, very historic cemetery. It's been around for a good couple of hundred years um, and a lot, lot of... A lot of interesting people buried there, including William Booth, the uh, founder of the Salvation Army, amongst many other interesting figures. Um, and it's just a, I find it a really beautiful place and a very evocative place, uh, especially on a wet November morning, as it was this year. And to be honest, normally is. I find that kind of drizzly, damp, cold November morning fits the, the mood of Remembrance Services quite well. Because it's in Abney Park, it's the service is a bit different. So in the past, I've played for very traditional services with the British Legion and people like that, um, military folk involved. This is not that. Most of the people there wear white poppies for peace rather than red poppies, which is what people wear otherwise normally. A couple of lovely choirs there. You can hear them singing under me now. Really lovely ceremony, um, really lovely service with very much a community element. But of course, because the community is full of artists, writers, performers, musicians, comedians, that sort of thing, there's a lot of very interesting people there and a lot of very interesting people involved. So, um, yes, yeah, it was a really great, great uh, event and it felt very respectful, but also uh, with that kind of descent that uh, Stoke Newington is known for. So yeah, I thought it would just be interesting to quickly touch on this association of brass instruments and the military, and specifically these bugle calls, which signify the two minutes silence. So firstly, we have the what's called the last post, which is the one that people know best, perhaps. It goes like this. And then there's a, that signifies the start of a two-minute silence, in which time people uh, reflect on war and remember uh, the dead and all of that stuff. And then at the end of the two-minute silence, we have uh, another military call, which is called Reveille, which I believe is the military call that used to be played to wake up soldiers in a camp the next morning. So the idea is to sort of wake everyone up from their, their slumber, I think. And that goes like this. So as well as being a, a very moving occasion and a really lovely thing, uh, thank you to Abney Park Cemetery for having me along, um, 
it, I also thought it might be an interesting opportunity to examine a bit of music theory. Um, if you may remember this segment from previous shows, this is where I know that many people understandably are scared of music theory or digging too deep into the, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of music. But this is a good opportunity to just sort of demystify a few bits. So, so we're going to talk about harmonics today. And that is something that um, Tamar touched on last time, I think. We've touched on in previous shows relating to the flute and the saxophone, that kind of thing. And the shell, in fact, in the first episode. But really what this is, is when you play a note on a trumpet or any brass instrument, you can then get what's called the next harmonic up, right? And that means that you're speeding up the air. You're not moving anything apart from the speed of the air. You're not pushing any valves down. You're not moving any slides. You're not doing anything other than speeding the air up. So you're working with the natural resonance of the instrument, the natural physics of the instrument, and just finding where that note kind of pops out. And it pops out here. And then the next one that pops out is here. And then the next one that pops out is here. And the next one here. Next one here. And so on. Now you might have noticed that as we went through each of those notes, the gap between the first note and the second note we played, so this one and this one, was fairly large. The gap between the second and third notes, second and third harmonics, bit smaller. Between the third and fourth ones, bit smaller again. Fourth and fifth, smaller. And so on, smaller, 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 smaller. Until right at the very top end, we can play almost a whole scale. Now, to be clear, just to reiterate, I'm not pushing any vowels down on the trumpet when I'm doing this. This can be done on any brass instrument. It's to do with the way the physics of a brass instrument, or indeed uh, a shell, as I demonstrated in the first episode, um, or in fact anything. You could do it with a, a coil of hose and a funnel and a trumpet mouthpiece. You can get the same thing, this harmonic series. It's called the harmonic series. And that means that we can play the whole of the last post and Ravelli on a bugle with no vowels, just by changing the speed of the air. So, all the trumpet is, is the same principle, but with these three valves. You'll be familiar with the three buttons that you push down. Um, those are valves that are connected to other small bits of tubing. And so when you push one down, it just sends the air through those extra little bits of tubing and creates, if you like, a whole other bugle. So a whole other bugle here, a whole other bugle here, a whole other bugle here and then combinations, and so that you can then combine them and get all of the notes in what we call the chromatic scale. So if you like, all of the black and white notes on the keyboard. But the, really, that's done through a very clever piece of design that just connects up lots of different bugles. So it's like having 20 different bugles in one that you can just switch between. But of course, you're doing that just with these three buttons, the valves. So there we are, a little bit of music theory in for uh, Remembrance Day. You might have also heard that in the last post I played, uh, I split one note. Now, what that means is I went for a note and I didn't quite get it. I missed. And that's because it's, well, frankly, Remembrance Day is a terrifying time for trumpet players and buglers because it's cold. So the instrument doesn't respond very well when it's cold. You're outside. It's the middle of November. It's relatively early in the morning. OK, I mean, 11 is not early but you know for, for a lot of musicians it's earlier than you would normally do a gig especially not in freezing temperatures it's very high pressure especially for the military guys who do it you know on tv and for royalty and for 
to honour their fallen comrades. The pressure for those guys must be absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. And in fact, I, I do have worked with some military musicians. I've got some uh, some friends who are military musicians, so I will be talking to those guys in future episodes about some of those pressures. But it's very easy to miss, and that's because you're doing it all just with your lips. And so I managed to only, in inverted commas, split one. It's quite bad split, <laughs> and it's always you feel terrible at the time, but yeah, people understand it's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, it can be a terrifying moment. So please do sympathise with anyone you see playing last post who might um, split a note, miss a note, or slightly fluff it. It is very hard thing to do, even though the piece itself is not that challenging. The circumstances mean that it is a major challenge and quite a big stress for trumpet players and bugle players alike. So, there we are. Remembrance Day and harmonics. That's how we're kicking off the show today. All right, on we go. So, we are on to the entertaining noises section of the show. Now, you may remember that normally for this section, I ask people to put headphones on if you can. If you can listen to this with headphones, then so much the better, because this is recorded using binaural microphones, which means the little microphones that go inside the ears of my guest, and they pick up everything that my guest hears from their perspective, if that makes sense. So, today, we have a fantastic guest in the shape of Nicole Cassandra-Smith. Now, Nicole and I have worked together on NOF for many years. We did shows together in Edinburgh for a long time. Uh, she is in a band that is, I think, mainly now sort of semi-retired, but a really great blues band called The Blues Water, who did a history of the blues up there, which I was involved with for a number of years. And Nicole is also a f- fantastic uh, performer and singer in her own right. She released her debut album um, earlier this year, which had lots of nice plays on Radio 6 Music here in the UK and uh, lots of other places. And she's just a phenomenal singer and a really great collaborator as well. She and I have written some music together. There's a collaboration with her coming up that I can't talk about quite yet, but is very, very exciting indeed and will be public soon. So look out for that. But meanwhile, here is Nicole donning those little binaural mics in the studio. So headphones on if you can. If you can't, don't worry. It'll be fine. So these are the little binaural mics. Could you introduce yourself? Okay. <laughs> My name is Nicole uh, Smith. I'm a singer. I'm based in Edinburgh. And um, I started out singing a lot of blues, but I basically sing anything I can I can get to sing on. But you don't sound like you're from Edinburgh. So. No, <laughs> yes. You probably get that a lot. It's always a fun, a fun question. I, I grew up in, in Jakarta, in Indonesia, and then in, in Stockholm, Sweden, and then I've been in Scotland for the last 11 years now. So you've got that kind of international accent, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I went to international schools. Yeah. When when I meet other international school children, we always recognise each other. Anyway, we've had a nice day in the studio. Very we've much. We've been doing uh, some new music. Very exciting. Sounding really nice. We worked together in Edinburgh doing a blue show. That's how we met, right? Yes, at um, the Fringe. At the Fringe. And so you're you big blues. Aficionado. Yeah, I, I wasn't really. Um, my my first blues album ever was the the Simpsons sing the blues. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's how I got introduced to blues, really. And then when I moved to Edinburgh, I got to know um, the the guys in the Blues Water, and they're the ones that actually said, uh, you know, your voice would suit this very mm. well. Got got inspired by a lot of the women, the old like blues singers, blues shouters, and, and then learned a lot about them. And I think because the whole genre or the idea of blues is about feeling, and that's 
mainly where I sing from. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The voice is extremely well suited to that stuff. But you, you were saying you're also. I mean, you're obviously a fantastic singer, but also you're saying you're a bit of a singing nerd, which I suppose we all have to be as musicians. Yeah, because you have. I think you have to really, really love your instrument or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, your 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 tools. <laughs> um, to properly get into it, to mm. really get very good um, at it as well. And looking back uh, kind of from childhood, it seems obvious that I would be a singer now, but I didn't I didn't think I was going to be mm. a singer. It wasn't a career option that, you know, lots of the adults were <laughs> telling yeah. me that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. you could do. But but I but I sang all the time. I just mm. my parents had music all the time in the house. Um, you know, and and I, I would know, learn songs, um, and my my dad used to say that I would be able to guess songs on the radio, like from the just the intro, like I'd get really good at I know this song, this song. Um, so I was constantly singing, and I have a couple of cassette tapes that that I, that I saved, which is the earliest uh, I guess evidence of my songwriting, um, and it would have been eight or nine. I think, uh, and then uh, there were probably uh, the cu- first couple songs. I was just running around with this my first Sony tape recorder, um, coming up with tunes. And uh, um, the two the two songs that are on those cassette tapes are "Misery" and "Life Is So Confusing." <laughs> those those are my two first songs ever <laughs> recorded. Um, misery was your first song. Mi- you I know misery. Wow. And I, I only recently remembered that I made two versions of it too, like one in English, one in Indonesian. Wow. <laughs> As well. Uh but uh yeah, I would I just would be singing even if nobody was listening to me or pay me or any, I just would be singing all the time. Yeah. I think that's why I think I'm like a singing nerd because I love singing so much. You know, so I might as well I'm, I'm I got lucky that um that I get paid for it yeah, sometimes. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But to be honest, I'd be doing it anyway. <laughs> it just seemed like a very innate form of self-expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, with this show, I'm interested in where music came from, and you know, yeah. and obviously, we've got no kind of archaeological record in the way that we have for things like shells or bone flutes, which mm-hmm. we've talked about before. When it comes to singing, but um, we would have been singing for hundreds of thousands of years, right? No, I mean, it's obviously the, yeah. the oldest instrument, and I reckon it would be part of the kind of the storytelling of you know exactly. early. Yeah. Amen, yeah, and and the kind of connection that it has with with language is really is really interesting. And I mean, it's funny because I, as an instrumental musician mainly, I don't really often engage with lyrics very much. You yeah. know, I'm listening. To, I'm listening for the the tone of the voice, like the sort of texture of the voice. Or but do you find that as well? Because you've got a whole other layer of things to think about, if you like, uh-huh. as a as a singer, because you've got the language as well. But singing wasn't always necessarily based around language you know you can what we were doing today writing a new song and the first time we went through it when you were just improvising yeah you just hummed you're just finding a, me- a melody yeah so so that's that's sort of one layer and then obviously the lyrical layer is the other layer on top do, do you think of those independently or do you think of them when you're writing a song or singing do you think of them I guess there's definitely the melody first, but in the in the back of my mind, I'd be uh, working on it almost subconsciously, maybe. Mm. In in my songwriting process, uh, I'd like to see what organically comes out, almost like just trust your 
brain and and mm. and your your own voice your body to produce something and then you know for some reason particular noises or consonants or maybe one word or two would come out while you're doing the first stages of finding a melody and then I would use that as the core because mm -hmm. I just think well this came out for some reason yeah your brain threw this out yeah so you can and that's a great starting point to write the yeah. rest of the lyrics and I mean I think as when I'm improvising or even playing uh, trumpet or, or other instruments you're trying to it's still about storytelling, even though you're not using lyrics. Yeah. So when you're using lyrics, you've got this whole like, extra layer. But really, even if you're just humming, or even if you're playing the trumpet or clarinet or whatever else, you're still kind of telling some sort of story or creating a mood. A lot of the stuff we've been working on, I would yeah. say, has been quite kind of... Not so much about telling a story so much as creating a mood or an atmosphere, right? Yeah, I think I think the core of, of all of it is always you're conveying an emotion mm. of sorts. And yeah. I think... And that's why people understand music, you know, through despite the words or the languages mm. or anything, because you just touch on something. I mm. think you know, because you're just yeah, you're sending out feelings uh, and emotions, and they don't necessarily have to be comprehensible. Yeah, they <laughs> don't know, have to be defined, and they can be quite open. I mean, I talked about it in a previous show, but where one of the things I think music can do more than almost anything else is to help us express our complicated human emotions because yes. it's pretty rare that, that we're just happy or just sad or just just one thing or the other it's, it's normally somewhere in between or a bit mm -hmm. of both and and that's words aren't always the best way of totally of describing those feelings and so so sometimes even just a sound can be but then of course once you add lyrics in as well particularly more poetic abstract lyrics which yeah. is, you know that's why uh, songwriting and poetry are so closely linked isn't it because there's they're quite ambiguous a lot of the time in the best best cases and so it leaves quite a lot up to the listener and the audience yeah it's tricky with, with lyrics i think it's that you want to find that perfect balance between uh, the words being open enough mm. kind of vague uh for people to infer their own you know mm. ideas um uh, around it but still specific enough that it's not just nonsense, yeah, yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, I, I think sometimes when if I'm playing and I'm trying to put myself in a in a in a particular frame of mind or mood, I yeah I might conjure up a an image of, mm -hmm. of something, or, or uh, even if it's just like a, a sunset or the sea or something, you know, something, yeah. something that's quite abstract and open. Yeah. But that you can kind of put yourself inside that, and I, th I do really think that helps to communicate it within to an audience you know that feeling well, I mean because we, so we're talking about the kind of technical aspects of singing sure so this section of the show is called entertaining noises so like we just mm -hmm. talking about is there any way you can demonstrate the different parts of the voice that yeah. things like head voice and chest voice and you know all of those sorts of things when you're singing properly and um, in a way that you're not going to ruin or tire your voice every part of your body is working um, and it's almost like you have to open up uh, your whole like pathway um but uh, yeah head voice is sort of i guess sort of the high like the top range which it, for me anyway it just feels like you're not taking air from too far down perhaps um the top range is also usually uh, for me it's the one that disappears first when i'm tired mm -hmm. so this is like i'm not taking any any breath from down 
like my, my stomach or diaphragm. Um, that's kind of what it sounds like. And then if you almost let your bottom drop and open. So you, you're able to have so much more volume and, and project because you're singing like almost, you know, even below your 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 stomach. It's yeah, you're kind of crack. Well, it's interesting because you you yeah, I actually that, you, you opened you, yeah, you, actually you opened across your legs <laughs> yeah, and like sat up and and you could see your stomach working to project. I, and I and I would um, kind of advise people, I guess, if they're practicing singing, mm. to do that. You want you want to actually even like just put your hand on your stomach and see how it moves, mm. you know. But the kind of thing where once you stop doing that and you let your body inhale passively because that's just what we naturally do mm -hmm. anyway and I've uh, noticed that when you're singing you kind of want to do that as well you want to let your body naturally do what it needs yeah. to do and it actually makes it better then you're not you're not extending too much well you're not, you're not introducing too much tension yeah exactly. no exactly <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, well, it's sort of controlling it but you want it well one of the reasons you practice is to is to get that sense uh, that it just comes naturally because it's uh, yeah. it, it's to try and give yourself the tools to be able to not think about it. And you think about it in practice, and then you stop thinking about it when you're. Um, I recently discovered the the whistle tone, which I don't know if that counts as a yeah, head yeah, yeah. voice, but that is like it feels like the air is coming out of your nostrils in this weird way. Can you, can you demonstrate? <laughs> I don't know if I can, if I can I do it right now. I think I can do this. Like that. That's amazing. <laughs> I've not seen that. That's incredible. So I, I learned that I could wow. do that maybe a few, a couple of years ago. Um, and then I've not practiced it so much, but I, uh, I can't. I don't think I can sing words through that. Yeah. Uh, just well, because it's really, a nostril thing. Yeah, you really. I mean, it didn't look like you were singing at all. If that makes sense. No. Yeah. Like, it feels like it's coming out of your yeah. eyeballs at yeah, the yeah, same yeah. time. Um, and I think I was practicing it with that uh, Snow White song, um, which is like, I'm wishing for the one I love to find me today, and then she goes really high. <laughs> I'm not super warmed up, but yeah, um, if you practice it, then it, can, it actually can sound really good. <laughs> wow. It sounded really good already. Yeah, so I, want, I thought maybe to demonstrate some of that, well, okay. because the other, the other part of the equation as a singer, as well as the sort of singer that, that you are and the, the, the music that you do, mm. is very related to the microphone, right? And obviously that's yes. not the case for an opera singer uh, or for a classical singer. Who mainly don't use microphones for amplification? They might use them mm -hmm. to record, but um, and I think it's often overlooked. So yeah, it's well, it's definitely part of the the learning experience. Um, you know, like when I s started out singing, I was just doing like acoustic gigs with friends. Uh, but when you start playing with a loud blues band <laughs> with like several guitarists mm. and horns, I think you would pick it up naturally. But it is. Um, and I think this is a really important part of, of learning to sing or practicing is, is is listening. Your ear really has to be very good. You need to know what you sound like. Mm -hmm. 
exactly how it sounds like to other people. Mm. Uh, that's part of the practice. And I think so with the mic, with the mic t technique, that's where it comes in. And generally, you you see it in kind of in younger um, or like but people are just starting out performing um you can tell from the mm -hmm. from the mic technique and it, it just it, it just practice i don't think you can you can be good at it immediately if you know how you sound like you know your volumes then yeah you're just gonna know the the you know how far you need to be with the mic or close and also don't um if you have you if you have to like swallow the microphone almost then you're then then you can't clearly you can't hear yourself and you're trying to be as close as possible and you should you shouldn't need to um and you also shouldn't need to be you know too far but yeah it's just learning the timings to pull back when you're if you have a holding a long note and it gets louder and just practice isn't it but also it's, it's understanding i think that a mic isn't just there to make you heard it obviously is a way of amplifying your voice but also it's a it's a tonal device right you can change the yeah the the, the tone of your voice uh, to a degree with how, how far you are from the microphone and uh and certainly for some microphones the closer you go the more bass you get right so mm. so so there's a way that a lot of um singers and, and instrumentalists i certainly use that um, on the trumpet on stage if I go closer you get a thing called the proximity effect and you get a lot more sort of bass, bass end mm -hmm. and so yeah so singers you can really exploit some of that stuff yeah I think I think like like yeah it's, you kind of you make it as part of your instrument mm. the mic so it's like you integrate it as much as possible to um, your singing mm -hmm. Bing, Bing Crosby the uh, this kind of original crooner that crooning wasn't possible with a big band behind you you, you yeah. couldn't do that because your voice won't travel your voice won't, won't, yeah so you, obviously you couldn't do it without any amplification at all but you also with early mics and things and you could just couldn't you couldn't yeah sing in that style so the invention of the microphone and, and the development of the technology meant that a whole genre was kind of invented a whole uh, genre and a whole kind of score of singers and yeah. Bing Crosby had just the perfect voice for that and and by like the the opposite of that would be the old, you know, like Bessie Smith and yeah. and Maya Rainey, they they had to sing unamplified. That's yeah. why those blues singers were called blues shouters because they had to sing over a loud band. In it. so when you listen to um, Maya Rainey's records, she kind she it's not like she sounds funny, but I am very aware that that she would would have probably sounded very different live mm -hmm. because it was suddenly a very you know then she couldn't actually project yeah. because the the microphones then wouldn't be able, yeah. able to take uh her volume I yeah think. just going back to that bing crosby thing it made me think of it um sorry it's a bit of a, a funny name drop but um honey connery band uh did a, a session with um jamie cullum at made of Ale a few years ago and it, it made me think of it because it was the studio where bing crosby oh wow recorded i think his last record uh -huh. he we were all in the same room which is uh, for those who don't know, often you record in recording studios, you record in separate rooms so that you can combine signals afterwards and you can mix it more easily and stuff. But it's mm. more fun to do it all in one room, it's yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. risky. But but trying to do that with a singer and a nine piece brass band with two drummers in it is quite challenging. Yeah. But I, it was really interesting because, particularly because it was in that room uh, where Bing Crosby had recorded, uh, it, was, it was a real lesson in mic technique because we were doing this ballad actually. You kind of couldn't really tell in the room if it was any good. You're like, what's good? Is this going to be all right? Like, we can't hear it at all. And sure enough, we went into the to listen back to what we just recorded, and it was re it was amazing. Like he, he oh. was just his mic technique was just, yeah. Made, made, know exactly what to yeah, do. Yeah, he knew exactly what to do. Backed off 
when he needed to move closer when he needed to, to get to project me out to be heard, but also to use the mic as a creative tool mm -hmm. for this wall of noise from I just thought it might be quite an interesting experiment if you wouldn't mind just demonstrating going from the whistle tone to the head voice to the belt and, and moving in and out of the mic in, in different ways. as well I mean just completely different right yeah just the, 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 and it's amazing range of um, possibilities yeah, thank you very much. much thank you thanks for having you got, me um, anything to plug you got your record came at your fantastic uh, solo record yeah my record is out on Spotify and Apple Music and all that do you want to give us a, what's um, the name of the it's called Third in Line and um, it's under sort of my solo full name is Nicole Cassandra Smith because um, my parents named me after a tragic Greek lady. Thank you. Oh, and I'm going to be at Celtic Connections on oh, yeah. 26th of January, which is a while still, but I think tickets are already on sale. So Great, oh, that'll be fun. Um, you can find me there as well. Lovely. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> So we come to the section of the show called the Genre Tombola. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, this is the section where every episode I look at a completely different genre as chosen by a random list picker of the 1,300 genres listed on Wikipedia. So I feed the 1,300 genres into a list picker, it picks a completely random one, and I look at that genre in the following show. So I've spent the last two weeks since the last episode uh, came out listening to nothing but Death Grind. That's right, Death Grind. And I knew next to nothing about that, 
And so when I started looking into it, it occurred to me that there was one person I knew who would be able to help me out. And they were very kind and gave up lots of their time to talk to me this week about this genre and to help me uh, make some music in the genre as well, as you'll hear shortly. So my guest for this episode is the one and only Andrew O'Neill. Now, Andrew is a really fantastic comedian and musician and author. They've written a book called The History of Heavy Metal, which is uh, based on a show of the same name. And also, Andrew was in a band for a long time called The Men Who Will Not Be Blamed For Nothing, who I've shared a bill with over the years, who were absolutely phenomenal live. A great band, great songs, great fun. So, without further ado, here's my guest, Andrew O'Neill. So, 1,300 genres, and I put it into a random list picker each each uh, episode. Okay. And this, right. this episode, it picked Death Grind. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I know just the person to talk to about uh, about death the hot, the heavy metal comedy hotline. <laughs> exactly. So you might you might be on speed dial for future episodes. By the way, cool. uh, so um, yeah. So just if you wouldn't mind, for the sake of the show, introducing yourself and why I might have yeah. called you about death grind. Uh, my name is Andrew Neal. I'm a comedian and a musician and a metalhead, um, and my pronouns are they them. And I wrote. I did a show years ago called A History of Heavy Metal, and then I wrote a book called A History of Heavy Metal, and as a result, I get an email every month from a different person moaning about the lack of inclusion of a different band. (laughs) (laughs) Metal is a a subgenre, but it's, well, it's a genre of music, but it's also a, a community, and it's a subculture, and it's something that has given me... It gave me a massive sense of identity when I was a gender dysphoric, confused teenager, and then I was listening to, um, you know, Sepultura's <laughs> "We Who Are Not as Others," going, hmm, yeah, "This is this is good." Yes, yeah. yeah, so thanks very much. So this death grind, right? This uh, mm. now I know next to nothing. Well, let's call it nothing about about <laughs> metal, um, and it's. I mean, it's an enormously complex world, right? I mean, as soon as you start digging into metal genres, it seems like some of these genres only have about three bands that that make yeah. music in that, in that genre. <laughs> and so i sort of i started digging into death grind and i've been listening to a lot of <clears throat> death grind whilst doing admin this week uh which is which is quite did you do not, the admin quicker as a result it was yeah i think i did my typing speed got got quite got faster <laughs> um and my, my understanding of it is that it is it's a kind of fusion between death metal and grindcore is that roughly yeah but but death metal and grindcore were already indistinguishable to the untrained ear anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, um, <clears throat> so death metal, they're both essentially the ultimate extension of guitar-based music trying to become its heavier. So th- they, come from, they come from slightly two, two different places. Death metal just comes from heavy metal. So you've got Black Sabbath, who originated it, they were the uh, sort of uh, amniotic fluid that became uh, or primordial <laughs> soup that had all the ingredients and then and then black sabbath were the first band um then you have uh, in the mid 70s judas priest who were the first band to detach heavy metal from its blues roots um and then you get uh, motorhead who a lot of people argue aren't a heavy metal band uh you get punk you get the new wave of british heavy metal and that's when heavy metal really really starts to sound completely like its own thing then very quickly you get thrash and some people see some people see death metal as as a development of thrash but i see thrash as a like a base camp stop off point <laughs> okay 
so death metal was all always going to happen um metallica pretty much um invented thrash malcolm dome the british journalist coined the term thrash metal thrash metal is extremely fast it has it has the influence of punk and hardcore punk um it's fast it's kind of chuggy um with often political lyrics and then a band called possessed from san francisco did a demo called death metal and their first album seven churches is widely believed to be the first death metal album so black sabbath were influenced by horror films they wanted to make music that was frightening and also they expressed their kind of disillusion with the kind of hippie subculture that they Mm -hmm. didn't you know there wasn't much flower power going on in the bombed out streets of aston Mm. um and then but the ultimate extension of that is with death metal whereas sabbath were influenced by kind of classic horror and hammer horror and you know this is before the 70s occult horror stuff really um whereas death metal bands were influenced by the kind of video nasty gore exploitation films of the mm-hmm. early 80s um so possessed morbid angel um uh, obituary cannibal corpse were the, the probably the most notorious partly because jim carrey was a fan and they have uh <clears throat> you know the the covers are incredibly explicit and gory and their song titles are you know so that's so that's death metal generally with a very deep guttural vocal something inside me this microphone's no good for that but because you yeah. can't blow it in the same way um and um some of them very fast some of them obituary very slow and chuggy but and and lyrics about um death and decay and and murder and and uh and some of them kind of go on the sort of satanic side um and it's it it's bands trying to sound as heavy and as brutal as, and you know kind of scary in the way that black sabbath were doing but it's something that's kind of like um full force at the same time <clears throat> you have a development from punk uh, so punk in you know comes from uh from detroit really with the stooges and mc5 and then um and then through new york and then you have the british bands the pistols and the damned and um and then um, you get hardcore punk. So in the early 80s, bands take what they did, turn up the speed, and you have GBH exploited. Um, and uh, in the in America, you've got Minor Threat and Black Flag. And, um, and then we have Discharge. <clears throat> you then get um, crust punk. Incredibly political. They're anarchists. They are peaceniks. And these bands are um, really pushing a political agenda. They're taking what the Sex Pistols kind of loosely pointed at, but turned connected to, to a political agenda, but also turned up the speed, turned up the aggression. They're listening to bands like, you know, kind of Motorhead. And, and as you say, genres are porous. So all, they're all influenced by lots of different things. Then you get this ultimate extension of crust punk, which is grindcore. And this is Napalm Death in the early 80s. They formed in Liverpool. The early... There's a, there's a, a Napalm Death song on... Um, a crass compilation CD that sounds nothing like the band that we listen to now and a lot like a lot of the other crust punk. Mm. Um, and they had a, a kind of revolving door of members. So by the time they did their first album, Scum, um, none of the original members of Napalm Death are in Napalm oh, Death. Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah, but also on the second side of Scum, so there's two sides, there's only one member that's on the first side. Wow. <laughs> which is Mick Harris, who's the drummer. He's the guy that coined the term gr- uh, grindcore. Uh, Mick Harris, um, he invented the blast beat. Yeah. So so um, 
crust bands had a D beat, which is Motorhead influenced. Um, the blast beat is um, like essentially 32 notes on the snare and double bass drumming. Yeah. So, so either two bass drums. Again, Motorhead popularised that. There were jazz bands that did it before, but as with everything, um, <laughs> and so you've got this on the on the on the bass yeah. drums and this and and the snare matching those drum beats. So then you go from this kind of almost slightly groovy, catchy crust punk to grindcore, which becomes the ultimate expression of speed. But then what happens is Napalm Death start listening to death metal. They're seen as traitors by a lot of people in the grindcore scene. Um, and death metal bands start incorporating the blast beats of grind gore. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the, the distinction between the genres just starts to diminish. But then what you have is where the map becomes the territory. And this happens a lot in heavy metal where as soon as a genre is defined, so thrash is a really good example. As soon as you define what thrash is, you get bands who go, let's be a thrash band. And they copy the template and they fit within the kind of borders of that genre. And that happened with grindcore and death metal. Mm. So then you get people using this portmanteau death grind mm -hmm. to describe what Carcass are doing. Carcass got a lot more melodic because, again, these are, the bands that originate genres are often really restless mm -hmm. and... And they they very often will. That's why members leave and they get dissolution because they've originated a genre and they go, "We've done that. Let's move on to something else." Mm. You know, because also metalheads are like taxonomists. <laughs> yeah. So retrospectively, people start to coin these portmanteau terms to uh, find a more precise mm. taxonomy of what these genres are. Um, I mean, there's there's a band called uh, Cattle Decapitation, which is uh, yeah, 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 which they they talk about. Um, this link between environmental-led, ethical veganism. So that band, you know, Cattle Decapitation, a lot of their lyrics are about basically reimagining what we do to animals as doing to humans, you know, as doing yeah. to humans. So that's yeah, yeah. so all of the kind of gore and everything that goes along with that, which is very, it's very easy to, as a non-metal person, it's very easy to sort of misunderstand and and or, or find funny or find you know a bit baffling is. Um, is 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 got quite a serious intent. It's an interesting link, isn't it? Because that, that that is that is a very very commonly the case. Like you know, my yeah. any any of my sort of metal head friends are very often the, the sweetest, most gentle <laughs> vegan types that, yeah. I, that I know. Yeah. You know, and Absolutely. that's that's a. I think people find that a bit uh, unusual sometimes. But I think there's I think there's a reason for that, and it's mm -hmm. you know I'm. I, I got any anger I had, any residual anger I had in my system, I got out at the Cavalera gig on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Bloodstock, which is probably my favourite festival in the UK, if you compare, there's there's no aggro at Bloodstock. Yeah, believe it or not, yeah. I've actually played Bloodstock with right. <laughs> with, with a, with a, with a five-piece jazz band right, playing, playing, playing metal covers, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, we do sort of get out of system. And, and the sense of humour, again is is underrated napalm yeah. death no that's a silly name yeah I mean, napalm yeah. death have actually just put out a t-shirt that's got a, a unicorn and a rainbow and the napalm death font in that um i think it's cooper like the garfield font yeah <laughs> they, they know they know what they're doing you they know, know they're doing, yeah. Um, yeah thanks that's an amazing summary if i've got time every episode i try and 
do a very um with with many apologies to the people who actually make this music and really like <laughs> i try and do a kind of bastardized demo uh okay. of, of what my understanding of that music is yeah so i just i've just sent you uh the track i just well for, what's, what's your reaction first of all i think it's great i think you've i think you've, <laughs> I think you've done a really really good job um, oh, thanks i think the i think the bass the bass is slightly too funky yeah <laughs> but then yeah, I, I don't. I generally don't listen to bass because <laughs> I'm a guitar player. So. Um, um, the drums are really good. The drums are really spot on. Yeah, and um, a, an awful lot of grind bands will use a drum machine. Right. Um, really. So, yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, this is the the wonderful thing about metal is the, is is the is so broad and and people's different approaches to um, and it constantly gets reinvented. So mm. I mean, most like an awful lot of technical death metal bands now um will program their drums but they'll program them so they sound like real drums what, right. what they're copying so, yeah. so just sorry to interrupt but just mm. to say when you when you say process uh, uh when you say program their drums what what that means is rather than using a live drummer they'll mm. they'll program in the computer right so yeah. they'll, but they'll, they'll use real drum recordings so real drum sounds of each drum but then they'll program in the computer because often, I guess, because very few drummers can play that fast or that intensely. Well, it, it's to, it's not to do with speed; it's to do with accuracy. Mm. Um, and you know, when you're building, when you're building a recording, um, it's just much easier for them to, you know, you get it, you get it accurate, for, you know, on the on the grid. So when you've got your um, your program that you're making music on, it's got a grid on it, and you just literally put the drum in where you want it. Um, and then, but then what you have to do is you have to make it sound like a real drummer. You have to knock those slightly off the grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and have yeah, that kind yeah. of push and pull. What the drums are doing sounds really, really good. Um, and there's that funny thing where you, in a lot of extreme music, you kind of want to make it sound less professional <laughs> in order to yeah. make it sound more authentic or raw or heavy. I mean, the second wave of black metal was a reaction against the popularity and what they saw as the commercialism of death metal. So we've got the so the, the drums, and that and again coming back to what that uh, is described mm-hmm. as that style of drumming with the with the double kick drum pedal, so all that stuff, um, and the snare playing like that as well. That's called blast beats, right? Yeah. And that's a big feature of this. Yeah, of this absolutely. Um, but the other <laughs> thing, the other interesting thing is a lot of these bands live will use drum triggers. Mm-hmm. So um, instead of just miking up the drums and hearing the sound of the drum being hit, the drum has a yeah. sensor on it, and that will trigger a sample of a recorded yeah. drum beat. Um, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. particularly on particularly, I mean, it's something I hate the sound of uh, triggered drums live because it sounds inorganic. Yeah. Um, but that that's the sound that people are after. That really, really consistent, like double bass and pedal, and um, yeah, it's this weird thing of like make it sound authentic and natural, and then make it sound really perfect, and then make it sound a bit imperfect, and then live you make it sort of sound super. It's you know, yeah, it's really it's like constant. And there's a and there's a backlash against that stuff. So we've got the drums there, and then the bass. You're saying is too funky. I think it's too funky. Yeah, yeah too funky. <laughs> I can't resist the funk. Um, and then, uh, and there's a bit of guitar later on. But yeah, it's just trying to get that that sound right. Did, would you? We were talking earlier. Would, would you be up for putting some vocals on it? I'll definitely because that's obviously on. what it's missing. Because yeah, you know, that's... yeah. I will try to do a few different types of vocal over it so i'll do the ah, guttural amazing. death growl and i'll do because um so there's the high the high scream kind of, ah, yeah. and then also yeah. the guttural 
but that's that's the that's that that kind of guttural thing is the is the style of singing that I associate with this having listened to it this week. That yeah. seems to be really like where yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, where it's at, you know. That. And then they put little, but then they put little accents of the high bit in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Accented screams. But also, it's that thing, isn't it? Like you know, like the the shorthand for death metal and black metal is death metal is low vocals and black metal is high vocals. But then there's at the gates who have very high vocals, you know, right, who are right, a Swedish right. death metal band. Um, is that because the most metal thing of all is doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would act, I'd probably argue the most metal thing of all is sticking rigidly to a genre. <laughs> okay, right, 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 okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, what you want with guitars, you want um, what's called tremolo picking, which is similar to the blast beat. Yeah. So um, to do it on my acoustic, so um, it, it sort of... Yeah. That sort of uh, thing uh, whereas with thrash metal like metallica well, the originators it's and slayer it's downstrokes so you think master of puppets my downstrokes aren't very fast at the moment but that power chords so um it's a fifth chord And a little bit black metal, but um, yeah, sounds so that's, amazing. That's, that's what you're after. Uh, Great. All right. Well, lovely. Thank. Well, thanks. I'm glad that I wasn't miles off. It's always a bit. No, of no, a risk. no. I think you've, I think you got really close. It's um, yeah. It's always a bit. You know, it's, I, I always say about about this stuff is I always try not to claim any sort of authenticity, but just as an outsider to. It was the same with Mbengue last week, where it's like mm. obviously I am not from this culture, but uh, you know, but I, yeah, yeah. but just try by try as an outsider trying to get into something it's quite a good route in to, to discover a, the different aspects of it. It's a great way to explore what defines a genre is try and make yeah. it. Absolutely. It's, you know, exactly. in that just, um, you gain, so Hendrix is the artistic love of my life. And mm. as I, as I'm becoming a better guitarist, I'm becoming closer to being able to play his stuff. And I'm just enjoying it so much more because you mm. inhabit the music. And it's like, we were talking about right at the beginning of music, you know, music is about kind of, playing it and enjoying it and you know like well, not just being the audience i think i think something that that this this show and that like everything that I, I try and do in this world uh like the live show and stuff it, it comes from is and this is probably from too many years of working with scientists and stuff but hmm. there's that there's a brilliant quote from the physicist uh richard Feynman, which i'm gonna um get wrong but it's as along the lines of what an artist says to him i i can appreciate a flower more than you can as a physicist because right. i can draw it and i can see its beauty and stuff hmm. and Feynman says well no as a physicist uh, or a scientist i can look at it and i can see that it's beautiful and i can appreciate that but then I also, what I find beauty is the, what I find beautiful is the photosynthesis. I can mm -hmm. understand that, you know, the micro microorganisms that live in that are really mm -hmm. beautiful in their own way. So basically by deepening your understanding of a thing, it, it gives you a route into understanding uh, a bigger proportion of, of, of what that is, the totality yeah. of its beauty, rather than just a particular aspect, rather than the kind of, you know, from a distance, you, you drill down into it. And I think the same is true for music. I, I, the more I've learned about stuff, over the years, the, the more love I've had for it. I think I think that's absolutely right. Uh, so um, I think the music emerges completely naturally and inexorably from hum from the human brain, mm -hmm. um, and and then music theory is all you know for a long time just trying to catch up with what that is. And that's exactly. kind of what, that's what you're doing here. You're kind of going, well, what 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 is it? What are they doing? And I I'm always really fascinated by the 
socio-economic background to why genres emerge. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason um, Grindcore happened is because of the venues that are available in Birmingham. Mm. Mm. There, were, there, were, there were some great venues. The Mermaid, I think, was the big one. There were venues that let people, let people put bands on for really, really, really cheap. Last episode, I was talking about pub gigs and about how important these grassroots venues are yeah. to, to music scenes uh, all over the world. But, you know, taking this country, these small, small venues where bands, as you say, that whole genres can develop because there are venues to, to, yeah. to play that, that aren't charging through the nose and that yeah. aren't kind of big, massive, commercialised uh sponsored venues like the o2 or whatever you know mm-hmm. they're, they're they're small grassroots things that create a scene and that goes on then to create if you're talking about the commercial side of it you know that goes on to create huge commercial success for other people yeah, and, yeah. and and more importantly evolves genres and evolves culture but so i think it's so important that the grassroots venues are, are protected and supported as much as possible 100 percent. yeah small gigs are an essential part of our cultural life and there's exactly. that thing, isn't there? There's that the argument that people put forward, like you've said, is you know, well, the big bands come from there, but most of the bands I listen to don't get big. <laughs> exactly. So it's not. It's not. So yeah. it's exactly. So I'm always very careful to say, well, there is a commercial argument for it, but that's also that's sort of missing the point. Yeah. There is yeah. a commercial argument. Say, well, where else is Ed Sheeran going to come from if he doesn't have a chance to develop his career in small venues? Which is definitely true. But more importantly, small venues are like the lifeblood of, of communities across yeah. the country and yeah, across the absolutely. world. And so, so uh, yeah, anyway, that's just a, another little plug for small venues. <laughs> but thanks so much. That was really uh, fascinating. That was really fascinating. I learned Absolute so pleasure, much mate. about that. And, yeah, I'm really excited to hear your vocals this afternoon. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks I'll again, Andrew. Thank great. you for having me. I'll talk to you soon, mate. Take care. See you soon. Take care. Now, Steve in the studio again here. Now, before I play this track out in its entirety, you've heard bits of it already underneath the interview, but before I play the whole thing, I just wanted to say thanks again to Andrew for some incredible vocals. I mean, honestly, how they get their voice to sound like this, I will never know. And more importantly, how they can speak afterwards. Um, But also, the little Easter egg is that the lyrics that Andrew chose to set this piece of death grind to are... Quite special. They are lyrics by one of the great poets. So while you're listening to this beautiful, soothing, melodic bit of death grind, have a think about which of the great poets you think may be the inspiration for the lyrics. And I will tell you at the end.
OK, I can reveal exclusively that the lyrics to that piece of Death Grind were from The Wits and Weddings by Philip Larkin. That's right, pick that up. I think Andrew should really be doing poetry festivals with that sort of style of delivery. So there we are. The Wits and Weddings by Philip Larkin, set to my death grind beats. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> The time has come to pick the genre for next episode. What am I going to spend the next two weeks listening to? Okay, here we go. Pop the list into the randomlists.com. Press go. Okay. Emo pop. Emo pop. That's what I'm going to be doing next episode. Okay, I'm going to be doing a deep dive into emo pop for the next two weeks. Wish me luck. Um, and I'm going to be reporting back and maybe trying to make some sort of emo pop noises uh, on next episode. So tune in for that. Speaking of which, the next episode will be out in two weeks' time as normal. So that is Thursday, the 30th of November. Um, but meanwhile, if you've enjoyed today's episode and you haven't listened to the others yet, do go back and have a listen to uh, the others. We've covered a lot of fascinating ground, I think. Very varied stuff we've gone through um, with some brilliant guests. So do go back and check those out. Meanwhile, thanks again for all the support. It would really, really help me out if you could rate and review the show. Nice reviews and ratings really do help at this early stage of a show's life. And it shows an enormous amount of work to produce but I love doing it and I want as many people as are interested in listening to be able to listen. So please do share far and wide. Um, you know what to do, all the usual places, socials at Steve Pretty. So feel free to drop me a line there. Or better still, I have a mailing list, uh, which is on my website, which is www.stevepretty.com. And you can sign up to the mailing list and there'll be all sorts of interesting stuff coming up through that. So that'd be really helpful if you fancy doing that, if you've enjoyed the show. One thing to plug, of course, is my Wilton show. I'm doing a show at the brilliant Wilton's Music Hall in London on the 20th of January. Things are really hotting up for that. I'm just in talks with uh, an incredible new addition to the bill that night. It's going to be a really great night in, I think, one of the, the best venues in the UK, if not Europe. So it's called Wilton's Music Hall, 20th of January. Tickets available from the Wilton's website or via my website. So please do head there, pick up some tickets. Honestly, uh, you won't want to miss out. It's going to be a lot of fun surprises, live podcast recording, live gig. Some of my uh, friends and colleagues from Hackney Colliery Band playing some HGB stuff. Some new music from myself and Valeria the Harpist you heard from a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be a really great night, so please do sign up for that. Meanwhile, it just remains me to thank once again Abney Park Cemetery for having me for the Remembrance gig and letting me record there. Um, and also, of course, my brilliant guests Andrew O'Neill and also Nicole Cassandra Smith. The theme is by me and Hackney Colliery Band and the brilliant Angelique Kidjo. Right, thank you very much for listening. Do spread the word, do rate and review, all of that stuff. Really, really helpful. Thank you very much and see you next time. Bye.